Today's reading is taken from the book of Romans, uh, chapter 6, verses 15 to 23, and that's on page 1133 of the Church Bibles. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that, though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just open in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the wisdom that we find in your word. We ask, Lord, that you would send us your spirit, that you will speak to us through that word. We ask that you will give us minds which are captivated by your truth and hearts which are moved by your grace. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. My apologies in advance if I start snuffling and spluttering. I'm struggling with a bit of hay fever. So it's not a natural husky voice, unfortunately. As most of you know, we've been going through, or rather kind of skimming across the top of, the book of Romans on Sunday mornings. So I'd like to give you something to ponder. Can you think of a short one-word answer to the question, what's the letter about? What's the letter about? The answer is freedom. Paul's letter to the Romans is about freedom. It's about the good news that Jesus Christ came to set us free. He came to free us from ourselves, from our sin, from our guilt. He came to free us from being condemned by God. He came to free us from having to be good, from having to do good, to be accepted by God, because Christ did that for us. Purely out of love, purely by grace, he has done that for us. This letter is about freedom. But Paul knows you. He knows that we're human. He knows that we will try and take that freedom as license to do whatever we want to do. And so in the passage that was read to us earlier by Helen, he tackles that danger head on. And he starts like this in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? So should I think to myself, it's okay, this isn't such a big deal, I've got it under control, God's pretty forgiving anyway. 
That's the question that Paul answers in the passage today. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you may be tempted to discount this as a problem. There may be a voice in the back of your head quietly saying, this really doesn't apply to me because I would never sin with a high hand, as it were. I'd never willfully sin just before because God is gracious. Jesus is my Savior, but he's also my Lord. I just wouldn't do that. And that's good as far as it goes. But if you're anything like me, then you may not think it, but you do at times live it. I do at times, when I don't want to think about the fact that what I'm doing is wrong, function like this. I do what I'm doing because I know I'm covered. I know I can get away with it. And so what's going on in the back of my mind is it's okay, I've got it under control, God's pretty forgiving anyway. Now I hope that someone here, assuming you would know that about me, would love me enough to have the courage to pull me aside and say, Mark, we need to talk. You can't carry on doing what you're doing and presuming upon a gracious God. This has to change. I really think you must, and then you'd give me some advice. But what would you say? I think you need to stop doing what you're doing. I think you need to get away from the temptation. I think you need to pray about it. I think you need to talk to someone. And those would all be good things. And those are all things that we would expect Paul to say in this letter. But wisely, he doesn't say any of those things. All he says is, I think you need to remember. I think you need to remember three things. You need to remember the one you serve. You need to remember the path you follow. And you need to remember the end you face the one you serve, the path you follow, and the end you face. So that's what we'll go through. You need to firstly remember the one you serve. Now you may have noticed from the reading that Paul uses the concept of slavery extensively, right? The word occurs about nine times in the passage in some form or another. Now the church in Rome understood slavery in a way we hopefully never will. About 30% of the population in Rome were slaves. So it was fundamental to the economy. It was fundamental to the culture. Scholars estimate that anything between 30 and 50% of the church members in Rome were slaves or had been slaves. So if you were sitting in that church now, you would likely be sitting next to a slave or an ex-slave or to have been one yourself. Now, some of those sitting next to you will have been very poorly treated, as you would expect. Some of them did very well. They were household managers. They were teachers. They were scribes. They'd even been able to buy their freedom. Some of those sitting next to you may well have willingly sold themselves into slavery. There was no such thing as a state pension. So it wasn't all negative like our perception of modern-day slavery is. Some were even happy enough with their master that they became slaves for life because of the security and the benefits that it brought. So when Paul says in verse 16, 
Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? And he's stating the obvious, but he's doing so to make an important point. Slavery is about unqualified obedience. There is no option but to obey. But Paul is obviously talking about spiritual slavery, not physical slavery, right? So he mentions slavery to sin, to righteousness, to God, and so on. He's talking about following and serving and honoring. He's talking about worshiping something or someone. He's talking about spiritual slavery. So notice initially that what he's basically saying is that all of us, every single one of us, serves one of two entities. Either you serve sin or you serve God. So look at verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? And then verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin, from slavery to sin, and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. So at a summary level, we are all either, everyone on this planet, a slave to sin or a slave to God. There is no third way. Now, it's understandable, if you're not a Christian, that you would find that very offensive. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I'm not a Christian, but I'm not a slave to sin. I live a decent life, I work hard, I don't commit crimes, I'm not perfect, but I certainly don't serve sin, and I'm not enslaved by sin. Sounds to me like you're describing a Hitler or a Stalin or somebody like that. Or maybe you're a Christian, and maybe you think, well, Paul's probably just using hyperbole, he's exaggerating for effect to make a point, because my non-Christian husband or wife or child is basically a good person. They don't commit crimes, they don't serve sin, and they're not enslaved by sin. Both of those are very understandable reactions. But let's think about what sin is. Sin isn't just doing bad things, although it is that as well. Nor is it just not doing good things, although it is that as well. Sin at its root is about making something into an ultimate thing. It's about your life and your sense of purpose being built on anything, even a very good thing, other than God. It's about having something or someone other than God as the thing which gives you your sense of self-worth, which gives you your sense of value, which gives you your sense of identity, if you like. And Paul is saying, whatever that thing is, it doesn't serve you, you serve it. It has you in spiritual chains. Your chains might be your reputation and your role at work. They might be greed or envy. They might be the regard of others for you in your self-pity. They might be your trouble life free in retirement. They might be your children. They might be doing good and being nice. At root, if your self-worth and your sense of value rests on anything but God, 
then that thing is sin. That thing has your allegiance. That thing owns you. I read it put another way, which is also helpful. Sin isn't just about breaking rules and violating law. It's also about violating love. It's not just about violating law. It's also about violating love. It's about having something or someone other than God as your first love. So at root, we are talking about having an idol. And if you don't have God, you will have an idol. To quote an old Bob Dylan song, you're going to have to serve somebody. We all have to serve somebody. It's how we're made. A lady by the name of Simone Weil, W-E-I-L-L, was a philosopher who died in 1943. And she put it something like this. She said, the only choice you have is between God and idolatry. If you deny God, then you're serving something in this world that you may only see as a thing, but in fact, without realizing it, you give it the attributes of divinity. If you're not worshiping God, if you're not enslaved to God, then you are worshiping and you're enslaved to something else and you, whether you like it or not, give it the attributes of divinity and it will have your allegiance. There is no possibility of worshiping nothing. As Weil said, the only choice we have is between God and idolatry, which Paul then rightly calls slavery to sin. So if you're a Christian, then Paul's point to you is that now you serve a new master. You have, verse 22, been set free from sin and you've become slaves to God. You serve God, not sin. And to then serve sin and presume upon grace is to serve your old master. It's not to serve God. It's to serve an idol. Knowing that, how could I possibly then think to myself, it's okay, I've got it under control, God's pretty forgiving anyway. So that's the first thing Paul reminds us of. Remember the one you serve. But secondly, remember the path you follow. It's the second thing. Now, there's a little bit of a knot which we kind of have to unravel in the passage here, which hopefully we can do without disappearing down a rabbit hole of detail. Um, it surely makes sense that being enslaved to an entity would change you, right? It will have an effect. Slavery to sin and slavery to God aren't static. They develop. They change you. The question is how? What happens? Slavery to an idol results in what John Stott calls a continuous moral deterioration. Slavery to God results in what John Stott calls a continuous moral transformation. Now, we could even describe it by saying that slavery to these two entities is, in effect, slavery to the change that they bring, right? To be enslaved by or to be bound to a particular path. You could take the term slavery and you could use it to describe not just the entity, but also the effect that it has, the changes that it brings. 
So you could say to be enslaved to sin, to be bound to an idol, is in effect to be a slave to the moral deterioration that it brings. And you could say that to be enslaved to God, to be bound to God, is in effect to be a slave to the moral transformation he brings. And that's what Paul does. That's what he means by the uses of slavery in all the different places in the passage. He talks about how being slave to sin means that you're also a slave to impurity or to, and to ever-increasing wickedness or ever-increasing lawlessness, to moral deterioration. And he says how being a slave to God means you're also a slave to obedience, by which he doesn't mean obedience to the law, he means obedience to the gospel. The gospel you wholeheartedly obeyed in faith and in repentance. And you're a slave to the resulting righteousness, and you're a slave to the holiness, to the moral transformation that comes. He's stretching slavery to the entity to encompass slavery to its effects. That's what he's doing. So look at verse 19. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. What he means is, I'm explaining this using the concept of slavery because it's difficult and you've got limitations. Amen to that, Paul. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. So, for example, enslavement to sin to idols has consequences, right? Those consequences will vary significantly depending on the person, depending on the situation, and depending on the idol. <coughs> Serving sin by offering yourself, your body, your faculties, to a career or to a loved one or to do goodery, to give you everything you should be looking for in God will have consequences. It will lead to drivenness. It will lead to anxiety. It will lead to obsessiveness, to all the ills that we see today. And it will lead to being enslaved by those. And if that idol comes under threat, then you will do anything to protect it. Now, there's plenty of great examples of that for us, especially in the Bible, but probably one of the most relevant ones is that of the Pharisees. So please turn to Matthew chapter 12, page 974. Matthew 12, page 974. <coughs> so by this stage, the Pharisees have realized that Jesus this man doing these miracles, and with what he was saying about them and their hypocrisy, had become a significant threat to their political capital, to their power base, right? So that's what they know, and this is what happens. Verse 9. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. 
a Pharisee would never have bowed to a literal idol. But their obsessive obedience to the law became the means of power that they held over the people. And so they, ironically, became guilty of breaking the most fundamental law of all. You shall have no other gods before me. And their obedience to the law itself made them into legalists with authority, which is a terrible combination. And they knew they had to get Christ out of the scene because he was the ultimate threat to their idol and to their power and to their control. So it's a wonderful example, or a not-so-wonderful example, of what Paul says. They were enslaved to ever-increasing wickedness, and it came out as soon as their idol was threatened. To be a slave to God, however, is an entirely different thing. So look at verse 16 again. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So when Paul talks about obedience here, it's clear he does not mean obedience to the law because that would contradict everything he said in the previous however many chapters. Now fortunately he explains it in verse 17. So he talks about obedience to a form of teaching by which he simply means the gospel. He used a similar phrase when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy. So when Paul talks about obedience to the form of teaching or to the gospel, he's talking about submitting to the truth of the gospel. He's talking about faith and repentance. He's talking about conversion. And that does lead us, as it were, to become slaves to righteousness, which is what he says in verses 18 and 19. So just as becoming slaved to an idol means walking down that path and becoming enslaved or bound to the consequences. So being enslaved to God means walking down that path and becoming enslaved or bound to those consequences. And those consequences are wonderful and freeing and glorious. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, Surely you heard of Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of self to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is saying, remember the one you serve, and remember the path you're on. You're being made new. You're being transformed to be like Christ in true holiness and righteousness. Knowing that, how could I possibly think to myself, it's okay, I've got it under control. God's pretty forgiving anyway. So remember the one you serve, remember the path you follow. Finally, remember the end you face. Now there's a little bit of a paradox in the two slaveries that he describes in that both provide a kind of freedom from the control of the other, right? So he says, and, and so he decides to compare them. 
So in verse 20, he says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. But now that you've been set free from sin, verse 22, sorry, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. And then he does a little exercise in kind of a benefits case analysis. So verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Then verse 22, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Paul simply compares the benefits the fruit of the two slaveries, and he really doesn't have to say much more. He holds them up and basically he says, you'd prefer this over this, really? This produces shame and death. This produces holiness and eternal life. This produces remorse, anguish, and disappointment, and it pays its dividends, a kind of death even in this life. This produces a new self created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. It too pays its dividends. And you prefer this over this, really? I couldn't help but think of my father when I was preparing this. I remember us having a full-blown stand-up, shouting, screaming, and throwing things match. And this was 39 years ago, 40 years ago. The memory is still vivid. I have no clue what the fight was about. We seldom remember that. But I can vividly see him shouting proudly, you can keep your blank, blank, useless God. My God is my work and I put bread on this table. And he stormed out the room. It was a startling confession that I don't think he intended to make. It just came out of the depths of his soul. Now he's still not a Christian. But I think, actually I know, that he would now agree in bitter disappointment that his God couldn't carry the weight of his expectations. All it could do was enslave. It couldn't deliver. And no matter how much he put in, all it wanted was more. Paul closes this passage with verse 23. One of the greatest verses in the Bible. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at the contrasts. Wages versus gift. Free gift is how some translations have it, which is probably more accurate. Wages versus a free gift. Sin versus God. Death versus eternal life in Christ. Folks, we can't earn the privilege of being a slave for God. We can't work our way into it. We can't pay off the debt we owe. We can't put right what is wrong. It comes as a free gift from a loving, gracious Savior. How can we compare serving an idol of sin with serving a wonderful Savior? How can we compare death with eternal life through Christ? How could you possibly want not want the latter over the former. When we're facing the temptation of sinning, of serving an idolatrous God because we think we're covered by grace, then Paul pleads with you, 
please remember. Remember who you serve. Remember the path that you are on. And remember the glorious end that you face. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can be released from slavery to sin into a relationship with you. Thank you for the glorious gift of grace, the free gift of grace of eternal life through your Son. We pray and ask, Lord, that everybody here will taste and personally know that free gift, and we ask this in your name.